Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, most companies are really keenly aware of the need to build an inclusive culture. In fact, every client I deal with is talking about the power of the inclusive culture. And equally, I'm going to say that all the senior leaders I talk to know how important it is to have strong mentors and sponsors, and that applies to every talented person coming through the organization. The senior leaders know how well they were mentored and sponsored in their own journey up to the top of the organization. However, when the talent is a different gender, or for that matter, different in any number of other ways, mentoring isn't as easy as it should be. So what I want to talk about today is what do you need to know to be a strong mentor and sponsor, particularly of talent, talented women. And we're going to start at this from a slightly different angle in that we're going to talk to someone who has trained and mentored women in the military. And if you can do it in the military, you can do it absolutely anywhere. So my guest today is David Smith. David is co-author of a forthcoming book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. I love that title. But he's also the co-author of Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. And there's a ton of other articles and book chapters that focus on gender in the workplace. I will add that he's the Land Associate Professor of Sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College, and he's a former Navy pilot, having led diverse organizations of women and men, culminating in a command of a squadron in combat, and he's flown more than 3,000 hours over 30 years, including combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. David is trained as a sociologist um, in military sociology and social psychology, and his work, as you can tell, focuses on gender, work, family, gender bias, performance evaluations, and so on. You can find out a lot more about him at davidgsmithphd.com. David, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Great to be here with you today, Wanda. I, I I really am thrilled to hear this, and I am thrilled about the book. I'm slightly disappointed because you've written the book I want to write, but that's okay. I'm thrilled to have you here as a guest. <laughs> but start at the top of this one. Why this topic? Why does this matter to you? And how did you get started on this journey about mentoring women? So, again, I'm a sociologist, and I do most of my research in the area of looking at gender perspectives of work and family, and that really started and was informed by my experiences in the military. I saw that everywhere from the beginning of my career, thinking back to the early days when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and, and really seeing how gender integration began there, and then further on through the rest of my career, seeing a lot of the inequities and inequalities about how we treated people um, and how it really disadvantaged not just the individuals, uh, you know, in this case, women in particular, but, but also the organization, because we weren't getting the most out of um, all of our people because of it. And, and so when I had a chance uh, later on uh, to, to really examine this from a research perspective, um, one of the places that I remember looking back at my own experiences was that 
you know, we, we always had a lot of uh, rules and regulations and policies around how uh, how relationships were, you know, going to happen in the workplace. But, you know, we would never really talk to men in particular about how the culture or how the relationships would fundamentally change or how work might change in the workplace and how, you know, how could we become more inclusive of everyone in there? And so, interestingly, as I uh, moved, I switched from my, my naval aviation roots um, in, in the last 10 years of my career as a professor at the Naval Academy. Um, my good friend and colleague there, uh, Dr. Brad Johnson, uh, who we've written together now extensively, but Brad's a clinical psychologist by training and former Navy psychologist, and he's focused all of his research over the decades on mentoring relationships and what makes for a great mentor. And, and what do we expect, and, and what are the things that we most value in those relationships out there? And we realized that we had an, an overlap in our interest there that really what were the, in, where was the uh, playing field not really level for everyone? How could we do that, and why wasn't it in particular for particular groups? And, and we were talking about this from the perspective of gender inequities in the workplace and were resources like mentoring and sponsoring um, the same, and he said, well, there's there's a little bit of work out there, but, you know, we ought to do that research ourselves, so we did, and so we set out on this journey to, to think about, in particular, um, how women weren't getting the same type of mentoring, um, and we can talk more about that, and sponsoring that men were getting, and, and specifically how men were not engaging as mentors with people who didn't look like them, in this case, women. And so that led to our research around Athena Rising. And it was, um, again, it's distilling all the best social science and behavioral science research out there to give the evidence-based part of this. But it's also the op- was the opportunity to interview uh, a lot of high-flying women across industries and professions out there, which was really important to make sure we had the voices of women included in the research in the book. And to tell us really, hey, what did you most appreciate? What worked the best uh, when you had a male mentor? What would you have liked to uh, have more of? And then in, in most cases, we had an opportunity to talk to their male mentors and to go back and ask these, these men about the experience they had in mentoring women, uh, what they learned along the way, where maybe they made some mistakes, and what maybe they wish they would have known more of or would have known when they started these relationships. And so that's uh, that's kind of how we got to where we are today with uh this conversation. So I get the journey on this one that you go from being a pilot and managing a squadron in combat and all that goes, I can imagine all that goes with that, and being at the Naval War College and then having the opportunity to do the research and asking women what they valued in mentors and then trying to figure out what makes for great mentors. I appreciate all that. But why did you personally care about women? and their advancement. Is there a personal mission for this one for you? Certainly. And I think uh, we find in, in most people's experiences and what motivates them to do some of this work is there is a personal connection always. And I think mine started in particular, my wife is a uh, career naval officer as well. And, and so our, our careers uh, paralleled the whole way, and I, I had the opportunity to see her experiences as well as many of our peers and colleagues' experiences, and that really, really informed um, a lot of my my sense of I think fairness and justice of around what that looked like out there. And, and the other part I would say that I think was very influential for me personally was 
with a with another mentor of mine, and and this was in grad school with uh, who I had a, a female mentor, and she was my dissertation advisor, and she challenged me in ways that I had never been challenged before because I always felt that I was a advocate and an ally, even though we probably the term ally back then as much. Um, and I always felt like I was part of the solution. And she, she challenged me to think about how in many ways, even though I thought I was part of the solution, that in some ways, sometimes the language or particular behaviors or the way that we perceive things is not, is not really the solution. It's actually reinforcing us as part of the problem. And that was really um, a great opportunity for me to reflect a little bit about how that is. And then how does that, if you extrapolate that out, again, for lots of men, um, how might that affect broad, you know, organizations out there and society broadly. So give me an example of something she challenged you on that you discover while your intention is absolutely admirable to be an ally and an advocate, it wasn't having the intended consequence. Can you give an example? Sure. And I think, I think language is always a, an interesting one in particular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, for for example, the the use of the word uh, when we're referring to the women, and I will I will use that when I'm talking about adult females, uh, in particular from a gender perspective, that we don't use the term girls because it tends to again uh, infantilize and and demean or or to lower status or importance or perceptions of people, and and I think that it's a common in our society, in Western society today, I think the use of the term girls is very broadly used out there. The other side of that is using the, the language around guys. And we refer to, again, broad groups of people who say, hey, guys. And again, it's not meant to exclude, but in some way, it tends to begin to exclude or to reduce the importance of one group over another. And really asking me questions around things like that and, and the way that we see things work in uh, various relationships and what is considered maybe normal or traditional, if you think about from a family perspective and, and the gender roles that we have, and really got me to begin to question uh, some of that on my own. Okay. the um, I'll make a comment, This the comment about girls. So if you're in the U.S., say referring to an adult female as a girl is just not really a good strategy. I don't care what your intentions are because it, the women in ter- we see that, feel that as demeaning, exactly as you've said. But the interesting thing is if I go to the UK, it's the polar opposite. In the UK, they don't like the word women. That feels harsh. And Women refer, whichever, the, the females refer to each other as girls, even as adult, and they're fine with the men referring to them as girls. It is not, a, it doesn't have a social stigma attached to it in that culture. It's a very interesting dichotomy, and figuring out on a global scale what language to use, you know, is not straightforward. I, and you're right, that language does have intentions or implications, um, sometimes without even being aware of it. So I appreciate this whole notion of mentors and what makes for great mentors. Can you just say a couple of words about what you and your colleague found about what makes for the best mentors? What do they do that's unique? I'll give you a few here in particular. And one is kind of the traditional notion of when we think about what a mentoring relationship is or maybe what it isn't. So 
but we often think about it that the, the commonly held perception of it tends to be this, this what we call the guru model, and this is the, the wise sage advisor, and, and you can picture the guru, and you're going to come sit at the guru's feet, and they're going to dispense wisdom to you, right? And, um, and you're going to become enlightened, and you're going to see the path to success, and, and life is going to be grand. And the reality we know is that life and careers and work and all of this is really not so clear-cut, and it's kind of messy. Um, and it's not typically the guru, one, one sage person who's going to give you all of that out there. Um, the other part of that is that you, you, you need to have kind of a network of mentors and, and mentees as well. And we, we talk about it in terms of a constellation. We think about it that way. And if we can begin to think about how inclusive that constellation or network is, um, it, it can make us better, too, as mentors. And so in particular, it's not, it's not unusual to find that uh, mentors are going to kind of gravitate towards people who have who are similar to them and like in the same career paths, but maybe look like them, and so men more likely to mentor other men. Same thing, this goes with race as well out there. Um, and so we can begin to think about auditing our network of, of mentors and mentees and how inclusive that is. And, and again, I think great mentors begin to look at that and make sure that they're Again, just uh, using the different lenses out there to look at different groups that we, we ought to be mentoring. The other part of the guru model that's not very useful is it tends to be kind of a it's a power relationship. It's very hierarchical. Um, with men, that tends to be pretty uh, common, more traditional in nature, and, and maybe they feel very comfortable with it. But what we find with women and other traditionally un- underrepresented minorities out there is they're not as comfortable with those, and they don't gravitate towards those kinds of relationships. So if you're trying to be more inclusive and increase the, the amount of mentoring that's going on in your organization, or for you personally as a mentor, a getting away from that kind of hierarchical model, that guru model, is really useful. So the research bears this out as well that we find that in more reciprocal or mutual relationships that there's, again, these are the ones that have the most benefits and the best outcome. The great part of that is that, as we know, with all the research for, for mentees who are being mentored um, out there, that, again, their outcomes are much better in terms of pay, in terms of promotions and advancement and organizational commitment, uh, organizational identity, employee engagement, job satisfaction. It's all, you know, great benefits to having a uh, mentoring relationship. But there's also something in it there for the men, who are, in this case, the mentors as well, and that we find that if you're mentoring somebody who doesn't necessarily look like you, in this case, men mentoring women, we also find that they get increased access to information that they wouldn't have otherwise had, uh, they have a more diverse network, both internal and external to the organization. And I think the really great one out there for, for leaders in particular is that we find that they have enhanced interpersonal skills, so better empathy, more EQ, and who doesn't want that in a leader today? Uh, yeah. The wonderful thing about that in particular is that at the end of the day, you don't check that at the door. You get to take that home with you, right? And so you find that that translates back at home as well and see better parents, better partners. Um, when we get back to the house. This is interesting. I never thought about, as much as I spent time talking about mentors and sponsorships and all f- range of help inside organizational life, I've never thought about how many of them we assume are the guru model. 
And I think you're right in describing That's a really clever way of describing it. And I'll give you an example. Just today, I was talking with a woman who's become quite senior and is very successful in her area. She has a male mentor who's been a sponsor and a, and a mentor for her, fabulous support for her uh, all the way through and has, has opened doors for her in dramatic ways. That mentor is struggling at the moment for reasonable reasons, and she feels that she can't offer support to him because, in effect, he's the guru, and it feels weird to her Mm. to kind of reach out a hand to him, even though you would say in the strength of this relationship over 10, 15 years, it should be a much more mutual relationship. And it's interesting how much she holds the model of he's the guru and I can't intrude. I wonder how much he holds the model he has to be the guru as well. So if there's the notion that guru isn't necessarily helpful and you talk about reciprocal or mutual, do you have a metaphor or an image that helps us get our head around what that looks like? Trying to think of a, of a metaphor for that one. I, I don't have one in particular I think that we, we use, but it's to me, it's thinking about this as being the um, the equal partners, and and we we often talk about it in terms of I think about you know think Socratic uh, questions and the, the give and take, the back and forth, and 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 really more along the lines of being some sort of colleagues or from an academic setting, I would say colleagues or peers in that way, and uh, and being able to. Because that offers also the, the ability, and I think I heard that a little bit in the example you just talked about, is the ability to, one, um, request or ask for feedback, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, again, that's a way to demonstrate reciprocity and, and trust, which is, again, the hallmark and foundation of any good relationship, including a mentoring relationship. Um, and it also provides the opportunity to do a little bit of challenge for each other, and it makes it more open in the ability. And that's, and that's again, going to help us to grow, and the, the developmental model of mentoring is all about that, that personal and the career growth. And I think that um, the colleague-peer notion in particular is useful because it gets, it gets not only to the, the career aspect, um, but it also helps us to focus a little bit on the, the psychosocial side of mentoring, and this is the, the support and the emotional support that we, we do for each other that gets us to a more holistic perspective in how we mentor, right? It's not, it can't just be done in a very fine context. That mentoring right. really should be done in a holistic perspective. Great. I want to come back to that point in a moment. I think, and I'll just make one final comment about this one. As much as we talk about a collaborative environment and creating reciprocity and trust, isn't it interesting how few images and metaphors we have for what that actually looks like? Our mythology and our stories are anything but. So that's an interesting point. But let's not dwell on that one. I want to shift focus. You said that it's best for people to take a holistic perspective. So what's your advice for men who want to be better mentors and sponsors of women or any other underrepresented group? What's your top tips of things that they should be doing? So I mentioned challenge, and I think this is an important one because this gets at one of the particular gendered aspects of, of mentoring relationships that can be a challenge and, and hold, in some cases, hold men back from engaging and reaching out to the top talented women in their organization out there. And that is the, the notion that 
they have a perception in particular that um, maybe that women are, are not tough enough or they're not leader material or that they're a risky investment. And so they may not, they may, may not invest the time and the resources into that. And in the same way, if they're concerned that if I give the perception that they're not strong enough, that I see them, um, that if I give them direct, uh, really critical feedback, that they, they won't take it well. And, and, and guys are, in some cases, afraid of tears or afraid of emotion, period. Um, we had several men who talked to us about this, like, yeah, we get to that point, and I was like, no, I don't do the emotions thing. Um, so that is not the case with, with mentoring. And, and certainly challenging your, your mentee is, is critical to, as we know, the development of, in our careers, that we have to have the incremental growth along the way that, uh, that's going to get us to the, you know, that's what got us to where we are. We are both today. Uh, interestingly, you know, there's, there's, some in, there's some really interesting military examples of this in particular, and I'll, I'll just give you one okay. where, where it was withheld. And this is in the, in the military, we have a, a really demanding school that's called Fear School, it's Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And it was, came out of Vietnam, and it was really to overcome the challenges of prisoner of war camps. And, and, the, and the challenges that came out of that war. And to this day, we still have a steer school that, uh, that again, folks who might find themselves there would, uh, would go through. But interestingly, in the Navy, when we first integrated women uh, back in, into combat units, and in particular squadrons of aircraft, in the uh, 90s, and women started going to steer school, one of the, the last 24 hours of steer school is a prisoner of war camp experience. And it, and it feels so real. Uh, I can tell you, having gone through it, it, everybody there is designed to break you down, and everybody will emotionally and physically break down at some point along the way there. And when men do that, guess what happens? They, they your captors will, will will just turn up the heat a little bit more. They'll get even more aggressive with you. Um, but guess what happened when women did that for the first time? They started they started breaking down emotionally captors backed off. Now, these captors, again, these are trained professionals out there doing this work. Um, and fortunately, you know, we have a lot of oversight and, uh, of this because of the, de- the demands and how uh, challenging it is. And they, they took a training time out and asked the, again, asked the instructors, like, do you realize that when she, she started crying, they backed off? And they were like, no, I had no idea. And it just goes to show you that sometimes we don't even recognize these things are the perception piece is so powerful that we don't even recognize when we're, we're doing that. Um, they went back and of course they corrected that and, and things are, things are good now, but it just points to the fact that we have to be attuned to the fact that make sure that we're, we're providing the same opportunities, same kinds of challenges, the same development. And, and the one I always, you know, I use it from an academic perspective is my mentees is, you know, as an act, if you're going to be an academic someday, you're going to have to go up there and present your research and present your papers and do that. And often students are, are really kind of worried or concerned about that or shy about it. And so we'll just, we'll just kind of slowly develop that along the way. Maybe we'll go, co- we'll co-author a paper together and we'll present it together. And the next time I'll be there in the audience and stay, sit in the front row with a smile on my face and your number one fan. And then the third time, maybe you go out and you do it on your own, but we're constantly just kind of titration is what, the way we think about this and developing and growing people slowly over time. Stress them, stress them a little bit, bend them, but don't break them. Yeah. 
I like that idea, metaphor of titration. Do a little bit, and then next time we're going to do a little bit harder. It's a very interesting metaphor. So, okay, David, everybody listening to this probably has the same question I do because I've encountered it so many times. What's your advice for men on how to deal with the emotions, which might be anger or the tears? And that, you know, that fear factor of, oh, my gosh, I'm about to get it wrong. What do we do? That's a a great question. We get that a lot. And so the solution here is is to remember this is really about, um, we're talking about anxiety, right? And and if if, uh, my clinical psychologist co-author was with us right now, he would tell you that, you know, there's only one solution for anxiety, and that's exposure, exposure therapy. And so you have to be exposed to these things that to help you get over them. And so the solution to both mentoring women or dealing with emotions or whatever the case might be is more interaction. So if it's dealing with emotions, it's all right, so maybe you need to watch reruns of Oprah over and over and over again until you get used to these kinds of things. And um, But it's increased interactions, not less. Avoiding it is not going to help you get over it. And this and this is true across the board when you think about uh, gender relations in the workplace. If men in this in this environment today, especially in the post-MeToo workplace, are concerned about relationships with women at work, well, the solution is not running for the sidelines and running for the hills. The solution is that we need more interaction to be more comfortable with it and to learn how to interact in a way that, again, helps us to overcome some of that anxiety. That I'm like I'm sort of stunned by. Of course, that's true, David. But never thought about it that way. Any anxiety we would have, we would say you have to have increased exposure. So here we are. So do you have ways of helping men get more exposure that actually helps them get more comfortable with the emotional side of women? So we often do this in workshops, and so even just the initial. Sometimes it's just the initial ask of going out to offer right your your mentorship in this case, and and so if you have a man who who notices junior a junior talented woman in his organization, and I hope I hope again men are out there noticing the women as much as they are the men in, in terms of talent, and you and you're trying to again coach them or to try to find a way to help encourage them or to uh, advocate for them in some way. Um, is what does that initial ask sound like? What's it look like? And and so often uh, what we find is that sometimes men are just kind of very direct about it, and, and they will come in and they'll say, "Yes, um, I would like to mentor you." And that's my creepy voice, um, and <laughs> in the creepiest way possible, right? And and the problem with that is that both sides are uncomfortable because she's thinking, "What a creep," and he's thinking. I wonder how this is landing. I wonder if I'm doing this right. It's not. And why is that? Well, because one, it's it's not contextualized. It's like it's not specific enough. It leaves all sorts of ambiguity and uncertainty about what's being offered. Why might he be offering it? And what's going on here? And so we find is in practicing it, people often don't even use the term the word mentor. They'll offer. He'll come in and say, you know, I saw you do this presentation the other day in the meeting, and it was incredible, and here's what I really specifically liked about it. And, you know, we were really lucky to hire you, and if there's anything I can ever do to, to help support, you know, your career, if you'd just like to talk about it sometime, 
feel free to come by and have a cup of coffee. And the wonderful thing about that is that it's an offer, and I think that helps to make everybody feel more comfortable that it's not this request, it's, a, it's an offer, and she can, she can decide what she wants to do with it at that point. If she wants to come and take him up on it, great. She doesn't, that's fine. And he's, again, he's not out anything either. And I think practicing those things, practicing what does it sound like um, to, to interact and, and kind of help get over some of that is useful. The challenge is that what we find is that men tell us that they don't have a, a social script uh, to follow, so to speak, in the workplace because to interact with women, they, they've, you know, many of them will talk about, yeah, I have a relationship with my mom, of course, and I have a sister, and I know what that, I know, I kind of have a script for that. And today, even with, if they have a wife or daughters, they go, yeah, I know what that looks like, but I don't really have a script for how I'm supposed to interact with women in the workplace. And that makes them, that's what brings up some of that anxiety out there. So we're helping to develop some of those scripts about what does it sound like. And, the, the, the flip side of this is that to avoid some of the negative scripts that men have been socialized with, and we call these their man scripts, um, and these are things like, like chivalry, right? This is really benevolent sexism, and it, it comes out as this very, it sounds very positive on the outside, but really it's very undermining, disempowering for, for women. Um, and the other one is the father-daughter uh, script that, again, a lot of men are very comfortable with, but not appropriate necessarily to be treating uh, women at work as, like your daughter. Again, very undermining, um, patronizing in some ways it could be. And, and God forbid she she gets stressed out or something and Papa Bear pops out and tries to rescue her. And, and again, women don't need to be rescued at work. Great. Well, and again, you're back to your whole notion of titration example, is that if you're constantly being rescued, you're not developing the skills, the insight, the strength um, to deal with some of those challenges. David, I know that there's much more to say, but this is a perfect time to take a break. So I'm going to take a pause for a minute, and then we'll return to this when we get back. My guest today is David Smith. We're talking about David's last book, Athena Rising, How men, how and Why Men Should Mentor Women. But I also want to preview there's a forthcoming book called Good Guys, and we'll pick up a couple of those themes as well as some additional advice when we return. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is David Smith, and the book we're talking about is Athena Rising. And I'll also preview, we're going to talk about an upcoming book called Good Guys. The notion here has been that you can't advance any career anywhere without great mentors and sponsors and advocates, and that we tend to mentor and seek mentors for people who are a lot like us. And we tend to have a mental model that that person is more of a guru and we sit at their feet and get all the words of wisdom that's going to help us. But as David been pointing out, neither of those is actually particularly useful in modern times. That one, it needs to be much more of a mutual and reciprocal relationship, not so much a guru one, so that both sides are learning. And two, we need to have quite a diverse slate of people who we are mentoring as well as um, looking at the range of mentors that individuals have. And David has said that in his research, looking at this so far, there are two things he would challenge people to think about, particularly men mentoring women. And one is this notion of challenge, not holding back on challenging, because it's only as you challenge that you get real growth. And a great story about that one. And then the second one is this notion about um the language that you use, even down to the way of which you offer mentorship. And I can imagine that shows up in everything that we do because these scripts, these mental models we have about how I'm supposed to act in order to be a good person and a good steward of talent, if you will, um, is really coming out of my own script of how I should behave. And a lot of that is driven by well, host of factors, but including our family history and how we interacted with people. So there's a lot of richness there. I don't want to lose that. But David, I know you have a couple of other best practices in Athena Rising, and I'd love to hear about those. So when we had the opportunity to talk to these senior women, very successful across industries out there, about what they most appreciated in their male mentors, the number one quality or, or trait that they most appreciated. They talked about how humble these men were and how the humility that they showed in the relationship. And it really, it sounded kind of like in terms of gender humility or cultural humility, the fact that they would say things like, well, you know, I'm, the men would say, I would, I've never been a woman. I've never walked a mile in her shoes. I don't necessarily know what it means or what her experiences or challenges or ideas around career look like. Um, and so, you know, they, they spent a lot of time having to, to learn. And it's really, again, it puts the mentoring relationship in a different light. It gets back to the reciprocity and the mutuality in terms of having this learning orientation. And their mentors did that. They, they really wanted to learn about it. And that's really helpful because we often find in mentoring relationships that it's really easy as a mentor to kind of 
see your mentee and kind of see yourself and your mentee in terms of, wow, when I was, you know, when I was at that stage, this is what I was doing and where I wanted to go, what I wanted to be. And, and we get into this kind of cloning and it, and sometimes our mentees even fall right into that trap as well. And they'll try to, to kind of mimic or follow in our, in our footsteps. And that's not always what their career dreams and visions are. And it may not always be playing to their strengths. And we have to be careful about doing some of that. So having that humility to really honor and see her career dream and her vision and to honor that in terms of being able to affirm it as well as to help her to develop and grow into it. The number one skill that they most appreciated in their male mentors, these, these women told us, was listening. They were These men were great listeners. And, well, tell me more about that. What does that sound like? What's it look like? What do you mean they were great listeners? And I said, well, they listened. Again, this gets at the humility piece. They listened with the intent uh, not to not to necessarily fix me or fix something, um, but to, to really learn and to understand what, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to accomplish in my life, who I want to be. And, and it, as it turns out that I think a lot of us, and it's not just men, but I think a lot of us leaders, we were been socialized culturally in our organizations to think of ourselves as problem solvers. I mean, who doesn't want to be a problem solver? And you know, mentoring can be seen as just another one of those opportunities to problem solve and to fix your mentee. And, and our mentees don't need to be fixed. Sometimes they just need to bounce ideas off of us. Sometimes they just need to, to you know, overcome the imposter syndrome and be affirmed that, no, you do belong here. And no, the hiring committee didn't make a mistake in bringing you here. And <laughs> yes, you are really do have a successful future in front of you. And here's kind of what it looks like. Let me help you to vision what that career might look like down the road. So the listening skills were, were really critical, and it also tells us that they were doing a lot of great listening because at the end of the interviews with the male mentors, almost every one of them told us that, you know, in some way I feel almost a little guilty about this mentoring relationship I had with these women. And we're like, why? It sounds like it was really incredible, and they were very successful mentees. And said, yeah, but I really felt like in some way that um, I got more out of this, and I learned more than she did. And so it really gets to that understanding the uh, the learning orientation. And the last piece of this was not making assumptions. And women really, really appreciated the fact that their their mentors, again, showed the humility, showed the learning orientation, and didn't make those assumptions about, well, you're a woman, therefore you must need one fill-in-the-blank. And the, one of the great stories we had about this, I think, was, from uh, Robert Lightfoot, and he was the acting administrator for NASA at the time. And, and Robert, one of his mentees, um, this very, very senior woman who um, shared the story of, uh, with us about how on a hiring committee, and they were hiring for this executive position, they were down to the last four candidates. It was very clear that the one woman of the four candidates was the most qualified candidate and was probably going to get the job offer. And Robert said that, you know, he felt like before we make this offer, uh, he just said to the committee, he's like, you know, I feel like I ought to say, I just have to say this, but, you know, this, this job requires a lot of travel. And, you know, she just had a baby. Um, and he said, fortunately for him, that there was a woman on the committee sitting right across from him. And she had like flame coming out of her eyes. And, and she looked at him and said very calmly, Robert, um, I think she knows she's a smart woman. She applied for the job. I'm pretty sure she knows that it requires a lot of travel. 
And I know she realized she had a baby just two weeks ago, so why don't we let her make that decision? And he said, wow, it was like this aha moment for me because here I was thinking I was this gender-savvy dude and mentor, and in this case, you know, I, I, was, I was stepping right in it and, and making that mistake. And so he said it was really a very important moment for him in, in thinking about, hey, i got to challenge my, the assumptions that I'm making out there. That's uh, that's fascinating. So, you know, this notion of being humble, so willing to learn. I don't have all the answers. I'm going to ask. I'm going to learn from you. We've got the reciprocity going there. The willingness to listen, as in to really listen, not to listen to the answer for you're looking for, but to hear her and what she wants and what she's looking for. And then this lack of assumptions. When I talk with women about the leaders that they admire in their organization, whether they're mentors or not, I hear all three of those qualities over and over and over again. Now, I have a question about a fourth one that you didn't mention, which I'm hearing a lot, and that has to do with the ability to boost confidence. Did you find that in your research, that mentors were good at boosting confidence? And if so, how did they do it? We did. And it really came out in, in a sense of um, confidence in, in that, one, that I do belong here and that there is a future for me in this organization. And it came out in terms of two places. One was the thought of, of stress assignments and thinking about how, in many cases, um, there the female mentees felt like they weren't ready for this next assignment. And the mentors had to kind of run down and show them all the different things about why they were ready and prepared. And that, oh, by the way, let me just show you what your male counterparts over here are saying, doing. And the fact that, and we've seen, and most people have seen a lot of the research out there that shows that, you know, if there's eight criteria for a job, and, and a woman has seven of them, she probably will not put her name in the hat, but a guy has three of them, I guarantee you he's putting his name in the hat. And it, it, it feeds into that, that confidence in your own expertise and competence out there because there's so much uh, signaling and, again, perceptions and messaging that, that we receive from others out there. And that's great with helping to kind of pull that aside and to show you, hey, here's who you are and here's what you're really ready for out there. The other part was advocating for them in public. And again, this is the part that the difference in mentoring between when men as mentees and women as mentees, that women don't get the sponsoring and advocacy component of mentoring. And, and Brad and I, when we talk about mentoring, we, we consider the advocacy component to be integral. That's just one of the many functions that mentors do. Um, they don't have to do it separately. You don't have to be a separate sponsor always. So if you have the influence and the position of power to be able to position your mentee in terms of advocacy and sponsorship, then you should be doing those things. And the women would tell us stories about this. And one of my favorite stories about this was um, we had a chance to interview Sheryl Sandberg, who's the, the COO of Facebook and an author of Lean In. Um, and, and Cheryl's been a great advocate for for my work and Brad's work out there. And Cheryl, during her interview, she said, hey, let me just tell you one of the stories out there that you probably haven't heard. And she said that, she goes, when I was a brand new into the workplace, my first job, I was a personal assistant for the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States. And everywhere we would go, we were in public, he would take the opportunity to introduce me. And he'd say, hey, I want you to meet Cheryl Sandberg. 
Uh, she's my assistant and just graduated from Harvard, number one in economics, and brilliant. She does this, and I couldn't do my job without her, and go on and on and on. And at one point, Cheryl pulled him aside and said, look, sir, you have got to stop doing that. And he's like, what? You're embarrassing me. Every time we go out in public, you start talking about how great I am and all these things I've done. He said, Gerald, this is how it's done. This is how we do it as guys. We do this for each other, and I have to do this for you. They have to hear from me how much I appreciate and value and count on your expertise, right, to do the job. Because that's me sharing my social capital with you. And and we heard multiple stories of this, again, where these mentors were out there doing the public advocacy component, making the introductions, making the networks, making the connection. And it's so vital in developing that confidence in your own competence and your own expertise. And so that's a great question. I really appreciate you bringing that up. That's so fabulous because one of the things that I think is often missing when we do mentoring programs in corporations is we do the, you know, listening stories and we do the, you know, reverse mentoring. So you're going to learn from her. So the reciprocity and we might do some listening skills, but we don't put nearly enough emphasis on the importance of the public advocacy. You know, getting to know that mentor well, mentee well enough that you can actually do the introductions and the networking and the connections and the public stage for her. So I want to shift a little bit. We've been talking about mentors and what great mentors do. And I want to shift now to talk about the new book, The Good Guys, which, as I understand, is really about advocacy and what our allies, what we get wrong in terms of allies. So give us the kind of, I don't know, five-minute version of what this next book is about. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. And and Good Guys really came out of Athena Rising. It's interesting. Just like with Athena Rising, where our messaging out there is to is how men need to engage in this work about being inclusive mentors, good guys took it and expanded that out to the broader idea of allyship and how we can be better allies for each other. And it came out of, interestingly, um, Athena Rising came out in 2016, and Me Too went widespread around the world in 2017, and we found ourselves being pulled into more conversations and more panels and discussions and ideas around the idea of not just being better inclusive mentors and sponsors, but broadly across the organization, how do we, how can we just show up at whatever level you're at and be better allies? Gender partners is another way to think about it for each other in the workplace and supporting each other. And we dropped everything at that point that, you know, this is really important in the, the timeliness of this. And so we went out and did, again, the research behind what great allyship looks like and, again, opportunity to talk to senior women um, across industries out there who just shared incredible stories around allyship and the work that's being done out there today. And the only men that we included in the book are um, men who were nominated by the women that we interviewed. And so, in other words, trying to trying to practice what we preach here is that not allowing men to self-promote themselves into the book here, uh, that they had to be, again, they're only an ally when a woman tells you that you're an ally from a gender perspective at this point. And when we're talking about allyship, we're, there's really two main parts to this. One is the personal, and this is, and in, in, think about it in terms of how we show up every day as an individual in the workplace, no matter what level you're at, 
And, and how are you personally supportive and collaborative with women in relationships that help to, again, eliminate and reduce gender inequities in the workplace? And, and that's holding yourself accountable for your own actions, behavior, your language that you're using, the work that you're doing, the relationships that you have with women. But, you know, that's, that's not enough. It's, that's, it's one thing to hold yourself accountable, but if we're really going to make a difference, in the workplace, we have to begin to think about the public piece. Much like with Athena Rise, when we were talking about public advocacy, policy has to be public, too. And it can't be, you can't just, uh, you know, think to yourself a good game. You have to be out there actually advocating for women, supporting women publicly. And even especially, I would say, for men, when we're in a room and there aren't any women in the room, and when, when there's something going on in there that shouldn't be, calling that out. Or when um, we're promoting people or advancing people or, or talking about resources, but again, we're, we're making sure that we're including women into that conversation. And the final part of that is that we have to use our power when we have the power and influence to begin to check and examine the various processes and practices we have in our organization where bias is created and recreated to form the cultures that we, we work in. And so I'm talking about, from a, if you think about it from an employment perspective, kind of from cradle to grave, um, everything from the higher, from the recruiting, how do we recruit? Where, where are we doing this in a fair and unbiased way? The hiring practices that we use, how do we uh, develop and advance people? How do we promote people? Uh, what kind of opportunities do we give for them? Um, and, and then how the day-to-day practices that we have in terms of making it equitable for everyone, and this gets into things today that are very important to everybody on their minds, thinking about things like paid sick leave. Um, parental leave is another one that's very, really important out there. How do we get past the, the gender pay gap and examining, are we doing gender pay audits in our organization? So there's lots of ways that we can do this at each level of the organization, depending on the kinds of influence and power we have as men. And the final part of that is about the relationships, and it is all about the relationships we have um, with women at work and, and how we can have more of them. Because again, we know that again, to overcome some of the anxieties that we have, we have to begin to, again, have more interaction, more lunches, more time together out there working and collaborating. Um, I want to focus a little bit in the time that's left on this whole notion of interactions, because in a, as you rightly point out, a post hashtag me too era, are you finding that men are more anxious about the interactions with women at work? And are there models for how we can increase that interaction without making everybody uncomfortable? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are probably seeing some of the research that's coming out from from Bloomberg and Lean In and a lot of few lots of places. But again, more managers, up like sixty percent of managers are less comfortable in having mentoring relationships or just lunch with a woman or travel, any of those interactions out there. So we are seeing um, men talk about the anxiety or the, the fear. And But I think one of the things that our messaging that Brad and I like to remind and, and really encourage this discourse among men is that I think we have to do a, a quick reset on why we're feeling that in terms of the Me Too environment. And, um Real quick, remember that, hey, what Me Too was all about was women asking and expecting to be able to come to work and not be harassed or assaulted. You know, it's a really low bar. <laughs> I think we could do a lot better than that. 
And, and I think we have to begin to get past that, you know, understanding that's what it is. And there's too many of these false narratives, um, like women caused me to, it's like, no, sorry. Um, men did, uh, especially well, there were a lot of, uh, serial perpetrators and harassers out there. Many of them were going to jail these days, which is good. Um, and I think the other part is that somehow that women, because of Me Too, have become suddenly scary or dangerous in some way. Again, I think we have to push back on that, that particular narrative. And the final one is really around this notion that there are going to be, if you interact with women or you have too close of a relationship with a woman at work, that you're going to be falsely accused of sexual harassment. And again, there is no evidence to support that. It tends to be anecdotal, and if you if you if you dig a little bit deeper with men who are saying these things, they tend to start with the idea that they'll say something like, "Well, I heard, I know a guy, or I heard from a guy." <laughs> and if you dig a little further, it just doesn't go any deeper than that, and you find out there's not a lot behind it. And so, I think that as men, and these conversations are happening amongst us in our in our own little circles out there that we have, when we hear these things, we have to begin to question those and to, and to push back a little bit and dig a little bit more so that we can begin to stop some of that narrative out there. Because again, the solution is, is not us having being further apart. It's being closer together and, and having more of these work, thinking about work friendships. Um, how many of your peers and colleagues that are in on your inner circle, uh, maybe your personal board of advisors are women. Uh, because if there if there aren't any, you're missing, and you've got some serious blind spots in your uh, in your leadership, probably. Great. Uh, presumably, we've talked about this in terms of women, but I'm presuming you'd say the same thing for any other underrepresented group in the organization. The same kind of principles apply. Is that fair? Absolutely, and, and we're focused here on gender, but we really think about this as kind of a kind of a gateway into the broader idea around inclusion of, of any, again, any underrepresented minority out there. And we, we, we do uh, touch on it a little bit in the book in terms of intersectionality, uh, especially for women of color, uh, yeah. but, it, but it applies in a lot of different other venues as well. That's great. Okay, I'm going to turn the tables on you. This I know is not what you've written about, but I'm going to do it from the perverse perspective, which is, do you have advice for women about how to better engage men in the kind of conversations that women need. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think there's there's a few things out there in particular, and and one is uh, to to begin to give one. I think uh, demonstrate or role model. I think maybe is a better way to think about it. The, uh, the the same kind of feedback or the same types of relationships that they would like. Uh, the, the men should be having with women, they should be role modeling with men as well. And so to do some of that, I think in particular, and to, uh, I think for men in particular, we need the feedback from women on so that we can, we can be better in the workplace uh, in the same way women should be asking for, for that as well. And so I think the having, again, back to the humility piece, the vulnerability to be able to um, have show the courage to ask for that and to ask for feedback and then role model when you do get the feedback what what should you say or when somebody gives you unsolicited feedback maybe um, hopefully not men giving unsolicited advice but if we do get that unsolicited feedback as an ally right I want to appreciate it and I want to say something that is going to hopefully elicit more feedback not less so I can at least Great. start with a thank you I need that 
Okay. Thank you, David. Thought what a perfect segue. I also say to my fellow female colleagues out there, have the courage to give that feedback because if we don't, we're missing part of the equation. David, fabulous conversation. My guest today is David Smith. The book, as you've heard, is called Athena Rising. And stay tuned in a couple of months for the new book called Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Fabulous. I think this important discussion about understanding that allyship has three components. The personal, the public, and the advocacy. I don't think it could be said any better. David, thanks for being a guest. Thanks for having me again. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.